Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Endurance Innovation. Today, we're going to build on a previous discussion that we had about some of the cyclist aerodynamics and the, the component breakdown and figure out what exactly you want to purchase and what makes you faster as an athlete. Yeah, we're looking at this as a, as a quite a broad category, and uh, this is going to be the first episode of a series where we weigh in on a whole variety of factors that make you faster and we'll we'll outline them first of course uh and then with the hope that uh you know you can uh, you can guide some of your buying decisions based on this conversation because as much as andrew and i like to wax poetically about cda and and pressure drag um for for most of our, our listeners i imagine that that's not ultimately what they're after they're after a, a conclusion or a recommendation on will this is this faster or is this faster you know the classic slow twitch photo wind tunnel question yeah and i think uh, the one advantage we do have in talking about cda is that if anyone's suffering from insomnia we can help out with that <laughs> so <laughs> Aside from that, though, having some practical uh, takeaways from the discussion is really important to people. And that's something that we wanted to provide here. Right, right. So we've split things into the way that we think about um, whether something is going to be making you faster, whether it's a worthwhile investment in time and sometimes money, um, into three broad categories. So, Andrew, what uh, what are those three? So the way the way that we see it anyway is uh, we've got a technological advantage. So is it something that actually physically makes you faster? Does it reduce your drag or rolling resistance? Does it keep you cool? And does it allow you to produce more power? Um, so that's that's kind of how I look at how technology could improve you as a rider. The the next one, which I think is underestimated in a lot of cases, is the psychological advantage. So this is um, kind of along the lines of trash talking competitors, but uh, <laughs> um, like, does it improve your confidence? Um, does it improve your safety? Which um, looking at something like a helmet or brakes, it it allows you to go faster because you feel more confident about your abilities to hold the bike. Um, does it improve your willingness to take higher risks? And the risks, I'm not thinking so much in, in safety perspective, but um, can you push a higher wattage or skip an aid station or something like that, which might otherwise contribute time to your race? And the the big part of the psychological advantage is, does it make your competitors see you as being faster? So when you walk up to transition and you see, you know, you've got an entry-level bike and you see all these people with their high-end bikes like P5Xs or Ventums or whatever, there's nothing. There's nothing more satisfying than passing one of those people um, with your entry-level bike. So, um, they, I when I first started racing, I was definitely intimidated by those people, but uh, passing them is, is kind of feels fantastic. <laughs> so, um, so that's there's a lot of psychological advantages you can get. The most, my favorite, I think, uh, of the psychological advantages is the the sound of the disc wheel. So if you uh, if you have a disc wheel, it's it, you know it kind of puts the fear into the competition because of that womp 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 sound, um, which is which is pretty cool. So that's I think worth the price of admission for the disc wheel alone. <laughs> Maybe you can just carry a speaker that makes that sound. <laughs> I'm not sure that's legal, Andrew. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Um, so the the third area of advantage would be what I'd call tactical advantage. So um, there there are tools out there that allow you to plan your race more effectively. So if you're looking at uh, pacing, Best Bike Split can be a great example of that. So you can figure out how to optimize your race strategy on the bike, whether you push more watts uphill, coast downhill, uh, what you do in a crosswind, and things like that. Um, there's also some, some devices now that can measure just how your, your body is responding to, to different, uh, different stimuli. So like heart rate monitors and power meters are a great example of kind of the older style, but now people are getting more insight into what their bodies are doing through software like training peaks, um, because they can see over a long period of time what their heart rate does and how that might affect, um, your race readiness. So I think there's, um, yeah, a whole number of different advantages that you can get uh, when you're looking at different equipment and how you choose to put these together is extremely important to your own race performance. Yeah, I totally agree. I think all of these have a role to play in the, you know, the final numbers on the clock. Um, some of them are obviously there to make you faster on race day and others are going to be, are going to optimize your training time and your, you know, perhaps your planning for, for the race. Um, so all of them have a role to play. And there's so much information here that uh, this is one of the reasons we're splitting it into um, three separate episodes. And we're actually trying to tie in some of the interviews uh, some that we have of experts coming on to talk about some of these uh, specific elements. So um, these three episodes that we're rolling out are not going to be uh, one after the other. We're going to pepper in as I said, uh, expert opinion on some of these issues to really um, solidify our own thinking about these things, but also give you maybe a more rounded um, understanding of it as well. We'd love to get feedback from everyone on how this format goes and what they think of it and whether or not there's good takeaways or if there's anything else we can add to improve the episodes. For sure. And if you guys have any questions um, or or if you wish to challenge some of our assertions, please do send us notes. And then also if there's uh, something that you've been uh, thinking about and are not sure whether or not it's uh, it's worthwhile, then uh, yeah, also send us a note. We have a few of those questions already lined up. All right. So let's dive into this, I guess. Um, do you want to, to start off, Michael? Sure. Um, so for today, we, we are looking primarily at things that you can actually put on the bike or on your person. So uh, for today, the plan is to cover wheels, uh, frames themselves, helmets, and um, nutrition and hydration, but not in the sense of nutrition and hydration strategy, but rather storage of these of these elements on your person or on your uh, on your bike frame. Um, so this really builds on the uh, aerodynamic breakdown episode that uh, we put out a couple of weeks ago that Andrew mentioned in the introduction, uh, where we looked at the individual components of the rider and the bike, and we determined the specific aerodynamic drag for each of these components. So this is where, this is kind of our springboard for today's discussion. And the first place we're going to look at are the wheels. Now, if you remember from that um, breakdown conversation, the wheels actually had a very small um, impact on the total aerodynamic drag picture. And um, this there's, there's a couple of reasons for this. One is because we were testing wheels that were already you know, quite aerodynamic. There were, you know, to near top of the line wheels that uh, that were in the CDA analysis. But also we'd only looked at these wheels from a zero degree yaw. Yaw is a concept that's important in understanding aerodynamic drag. And uh, I'll let, you know, our resident expert, Andrew, talk about it. 
So the uh, the aerodynamics of wheels are pretty complex. They're one of the components on the bike that's that's rotating. So um, having that interface and that interaction between the the frame and the wheel plays a big role on things. Um, the other thing too is everyone has heard about uh, crosswinds and crosswind stability and things like that, and that's actually highlighting where wheels become very impactful. So the reason that that crosswind stability is important is because when when you're being pushed in a crosswind, that's actually when wheels make you faster. So we didn't really talk about it in our last episode, but when I head tested disc wheels at a crosswind before, they actually come up as a negative drag. And what that means is it's actually pushing you forward, which if you take a second to think about it, like you're going into the wind, so how can it possibly push you forward? And I'm sure some people have seen negative drag numbers on aero testing for disc wheels and things like that and kind of questioned, okay, what is actually going on here? And it's a valid question. And I had to kind of prove it to myself by doing vector diagrams of lift and drag. And what it comes down to is basically if you can generate enough um, side force in the wheel without generating much drag, the way the components resolve or the way that the forces resolve is that it uh, pushes you forward faster than it uh, pulls you back. So harnessing that crosswind is extremely important. Now, Whenever you have the side force, the, the bigger it is, the more it's going to push you across the road. So if you're going in, you know, down like the descent down uh, heavy in Kona, where you hear about these massive like 40 to 50 mile an hour crosswinds or like 70 to 80 kilometer an hour crosswinds, uh, that's a lot of crosswind. <laughs> so that's, that's a dangerous amount. And that's why they don't allow disc wheels at Kona, um, just because the, the side force does just push you so much. And that's beyond what you can reasonably control as a cyclist. But in a lot of cases, if you don't have wind gusts, if you have a steady wind, discs can make you extremely fast. Uh, that's a great explanation of it, uh, Andrew. And um, for those of you who are not necessarily interested in drawing your own vector diagrams, all you really have to know is if you've got a if you've got a disc in the back or really in the front, but we're, we're talking about at the back because front discs are not allowed for reasons we'll get into in a second. Um, the more of a side wind race you have, the more advantage you are going to garner from that disc wheel. The trade-off, of course, is that side force that's going to push you across the road that uh, Andrew mentioned. And so that is why race directors will sometimes not allow you to uh, race with uh, disc wheels. Sometimes it's a it's a kind of a race wide ban, like in Kona, and other times they will um, reserve the right to make the call on race day. So if you plan on racing with a disc wheel, you should be prepared to have a backup wheel in case the winds are, are sufficiently high for the race director to make that decision not to let you use it. But um, ultimately, the bigger the cross sectional area of your wheels, the more. Uh, thrust you're going to get or the 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 less drag you will get or total drag you will get from a side wind um so one thing to be said about rear wheels is uh, and we've talked about this or we've mentioned that in past episodes is that given that your rear wheel is not a steering wheel on a bicycle um it does not affect steering so by that i mean even with very strong side winds all you're getting is a side force that's pushing you across the road it is not grabbing your handlebars and adding a little bit of a steering torque and, and making you wobble that way whereas a front wheel definitely does that so uh andrew let's talk about how the depth of the front wheel uh while 
deeper is still better in the front, how the depth can affect steering input and uh, make things a little bit less stable up front. Yeah, so this is a really interesting part of the discussion. And um, this is where it gets a little bit more into aerodynamic theory. So what what we're looking at is basically, um, my interpretation of it anyway, is uh, the stall conditions of the wheel. So if you have a nice airfoil shape, you get... Um, you get this gradual increase in side force, and then when it stalls, when the flow detaches, um, this side force drops off very quickly. So this is the same as in aircraft. You may have heard the term stall before, and it's nothing to do with the engine stalling. It's actually the lift surface is not working. So it's just uh, the, the flow can't stay attached anymore. It doesn't have enough energy to hold itself against the, the wing surface. The same thing happens with your wheels. Um, and the reason that this can lead to instability is because we get stall occurring at a different position on the front section of the wheel versus the rear section of the wheel. And what I mean by front and rear, we're still talking about just the front wheel. But if you took, not that you'd ever want to, if you took a saw and cut your wheel in half and looked at um, the, the profile and where it is um, kind of the leading edge of the, the front wheel versus the trailing edge, the flow actually hits it the opposite way. So when... Normally, the front, front front section of the front wheel will get the airflow hitting the tire first, and then it follows around the surface of the, the rim. The trailing section is the opposite, where it hits the inside of the, the rim, so that actual carbon rim shape that you see and pay so much for. Uh, it hits that first and then follows over the tire. What manufacturers used to do was they optimized for the front section of the wheel. So they would have a nice tapered airfoil profile. And you'd see this with, I think, Reynolds Strike was one of the really popular brands. Um, so they were super aerodynamic at very low yaw conditions. But as soon as you got into the stall range, um, you'd get the one half of the wheel stalling and the other half not stalling, which means you've got a large force pushing the top of the wheel and a small force pushing the, the back half of the wheel. And that's what leads to steering torque. And when you're hovering around this range where it's just stalling, that's when you get this really unpredictable performance where it's trying to basically wrestle the handlebars out of your hands. And that's that's where it's dangerous. And that's that's where all this, um, this bad performance and this bad uh, or like the interpretation of a, a wheel being bad comes from right and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to paraphrase what Andrew just said um, for and he he brought up a great example of the uh, the older Reynolds wheels but if you look at you know aero wheels that are let's say more than 10 or 15 years old and they were around they were more of a novelty um, you most of them would have the the trailing edge or the the point the the part of the rim opposite of the tire most of them would have it would come to a fairly sharp point so the the cross section if you did saw through the through the rim as andrew suggested or didn't suggest uh would be would look a little bit like a triangle right where uh, where the base of the triangle was the the tire bed and the the top of the triangle the vertex would be the the point where the wheel well ended and the spokes began um and uh, if you have a wheel like that all you really need to know you can you know do stall mathematics or all you really need to know is that if you have a wheel like that at some crosswind depending on your own speed and the speed of the wind obviously you are going to get a condition where that wheel becomes quite unstable so it gets a little bit wobbly um and uh the, you know it can definitely it might not throw you off the bike, but it, it's not going to feel very comfortable, and you will have to fight that front wheel to to keep it in line. 
Um, but uh, with more modern wheels, there is a, an interesting solution to that problem, right, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. So they use this um, the shape that's kind of more symmetric. It's a toroidal shape, and you hear a lot about wheels being very wide now, and and this just gives it this symmetric profile, which reacts a lot more stably in crosswind conditions. So this stall that I ha- that I mentioned before, with the really sharp um, trailing edge, it can occur very quickly. And the same thing happens. Like this was discovered in the 30s when uh, NACA, which was the predecessor to NASA, um, they tested hundreds or thousands of different airfoil profiles, and they found that some fell off really quickly, so that the stall happened extremely abruptly, and others had a very soft stall where it happened gradually, and you had a slow decrease um, of the the lift. So having this this soft stall contributes a ton to stability and confidence. And the confidence, I think, is actually like a big part of the psychological uh, side of things as well. So if you can stay in aero position because you know that your wheel isn't going to surprise you, that makes you faster. So just knowing that your wheel can be more stable, um, if nothing else, is is a huge advantage. So modern wheels are, are certainly more stable up front. What about the depth of the rim? So we, I think we agree that the, the, the deeper the rear can be the faster you're going to go provided the race allows a disc they'll always allow like a deep like you know an 80 or 90 um zip used to have their 1080s which were i think 100 millimeter deep um wheels which they no longer make so the deeper the better in the rear what about the front andrew how do you think about that yeah well i mean a big part of it is just the confidence and the ability to uh to, to lean into it and to, to be able to accept that and not be surprised. So if you can go deeper, the the side force becomes larger. It's the same way that we have our CDA. So the A component is your frontal area for your drag. For the wheels, you have a CLA, which is the lift coefficient, CL, um, times the cross-sectional area. So if you can increase that cross-sectional area, you can increase your side force, which translates to the thrust afterwards. And that's why a disc wheel, which has much more cross-sectional area for the, the side winds, um, that's why they can be so much faster. Um, now, the reason we can't allow those for the front or shouldn't allow them in any kind of crosswind is actually getting to a neat, well, I think it's neat part of aerodynamics. But um, when when you have a stall, um, and that's why you see them in track conditions, because they don't have to worry about crosswinds. Yeah. So that's another way of saying that if you if you try to ride a disc wheel with any kind of sidewind, you would be in for a, a hell of a ride. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, whatever advantage you may have been able to suss out from uh, from having a disc versus something like a deep, you know, like an like a 40, 60, 80 millimeter front, uh, you would probably lose by having to, you know, the the ship my pants moment where you'd have to sit up and grab the handlebars <laughs> and and slow down and uh you know that would not make for a fast race at all or possibly retrieve your bike out of a field so depending on how <laughs> severe the crosswind is yes also also not advisable what kind of wheels do you personally prefer michael uh i'm a fan of uh so I've ridden everything from 40s to 90s up front. Um, I will say that, you know, it, it depends on how deep your pockets are, right? Like, look, if you can if you can buy a 40, 60, 90, which are the typical depths, or 45, 60, 90, and then let's say a 60, 90 disc rear, you know, if you're if you have the finances for a whole set of wheels like that, then go for it. And then if it's if it's super windy, you'd want to go more conservative, and by that I mean smaller 
profile on the front and uh, maybe even not a disc on the rear, depending on what the race directors are saying. And if it's fair, you know, if it's um, not super windy, but with a bit of side side wind, that'll give you the advantage. I would say go as deep as you're allowed to go. So, you know, even 90 front and, and disc rear. Um, but most of us don't have the luxury of, of having three sets of wheels. Um, and <laughs> the, the winds also aren't that dramatic. So for most people, I would say a really good combination would be uh, a pair of 60s, so a front and rear 60 and a rear disc, because then you can do 60-60 on a windy day or 60 disc, or, well, on a windy day where you're uncomfortable or, or the disc is illegal, or a 60-60 on a, um, or excuse me, a 60 disc on, I would say, 85% of the, the races. Um, the caveat there is if you are, uh, if you're a lighter athlete, um, there's obviously going to take, you know, it takes less force to move a lighter object across the road than it would, you know, a heavier object like myself. So if you're a lighter athlete, then you may want to err on a little bit of a lower, um, lower depth. And it's important to note that the differences between, let's say, even like a 45 front and a 90 front aren't that dramatic in most conditions. So if there is any discomfort with a 90 or like a deep wheel and more comfort with a less deep wheel, I think the, the, clear call is to go with a more conservative strategy, uh, a less deep front wheel, um, in order to just really maintain that stability and comfort of the rider. Yeah, absolutely. You might be saving 2% in overall drag, but uh, each time you pop your head up, you might be doubling your drag. So it's uh, it's not worth that extra 2% gain if you don't think you can handle it. Yeah, we've talked about this before too. And that, that the difference between, you know, a, a decent arrow position, somebody in the arrow bars and, and somebody sitting up could be 50%. So your 2% savings, if you're going to spend an appreciable amount of the time of your ride sitting up rather than in the aero position are, are out the window when the the cost of sitting up is 50 percent or more yep absolutely um so my personal selection for wheels is um i run a 90 up front and then a disc in the rear which is about the the biggest you can get um but i'm also a heavier rider and um, i've had a great experience with the wheels overall um so i i have flow cycling wheels and i would say in terms of price performance they're they're right up there. They're um, one of my favorite wheels to recommend to people, and they've been getting very popular over the last couple of years. Right. So this brings us to a really good question, too, is there's for the same, essentially the same shape. So the shapes, I think, are no longer evolving too much. Like when, when people went to the toroidal shape, it's toroidal across the board, whether or not you're buying wheels from Alibaba um, or from, you know, from Envy or Zip um, and, and paying 10 times as much in some cases, eight times as much. Um, so what, wh how would you think about which wheels would you buy um, based on the fact that aerodynamically, they're probably going to be fairly close in performance, indistinguishable in my opinion. If you're on an equal footing for aerodynamic performance, I don't think there's much there's much evidence to show that weight really plays a big role. If you're doing a ton of climbing, then maybe, but um, I would say for the most part, uh, whatever fits your budget best and whatever you feel most confident with, a lot of people would be a little hesitant or, or ordering something out of China. Um, then you do have to worry sometimes about the subcomponents that are being used, like the spoke quality in the hubs. But um, if the wheels themselves uh, are built properly, they might be slightly heavier, but they should have roughly the same aerodynamic performance. So, um, and I have heard good stories from people who have gotten the the open mold designs and have 
I've had uh, just a, a wonderful experience with them. Yeah, uh, you do hear those stories. You also hear the horror stories. Um, I think generally, the if you can boil it down, f- and I think it's getting better, but the customer experience is certainly not as good with uh, um, with sort of OEM open mold stuff coming out of coming out of China. Mm-hmm. Um, that can that might not be a problem at all if your wheels are exactly as you ordered them, but that might be a problem if they are not. Uh, I think that is improving, but uh, I don't have any personal experience with this. I do know people who've ridden open mold wheels and like them just fine. Um, anecdotally, I've heard that for um, rim brake wheels, that there's definitely an advantage to higher end, um, you know, American European brands uh, in terms of braking performance, because carbon is never going to perform as well as aluminum, obviously, for uh, f- for braking. So for rim brake models, there might be an advantage in braking. Uh, warranty service is certainly easier and better in, uh, you know, in for, for larger brands, uh, even though they're all essentially made in the same factories. <laughs> so um, that would be that would be my my line of thinking. So me personally, I, I, I would still balk at uh, at purchasing open mold OEM wheels from China. Uh, just because you know that that customer experience and also just the ability to deal with issues, um, but I agree with Andrew. I've had nothing but really uh, good experiences with Flow, both in terms of their customer service, but also um, in terms of the quality of the wheels. I've I've used both of both their Gen One aluminum brake surface wheels and their Gen Two um, full carbon uh, rim brake wheels, and have had no issues with either, and have uh, enjoyed riding them quite a bit. I'm going to toss a kind of potentially controversial point out there and say that my preference would actually be to go for the aluminum braking surface. Um, they are heavier, but as we've discussed, like they, the weight really isn't a big impact in, in a triathlon. Um, so I, I would fully toss my hat in the ring saying, go for the aluminum just because of the in- increased uh, braking performance and um, just that confidence you get from it. Yeah, I would tend to agree. There's a lot of um, even really good wheels, really high-end, expensive, you know, NV and, and Zip wheels. Their brake tracks with all their high-end treatments and 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 technology that goes into um, rim brake treatments for carbon wheels. The aluminum brake tracks always brake better. Always. <laughs> there's just no. There's just no doubt there. And uh, uh, brake pads are cheaper, um, and you don't have to worry about which brake pads you're you're putting on on your rim. There are not that many people with rim brake bikes that have, let's say, if you're if you're running two sets of wheels and one of them is a, you know, this is kind of an outdated way of doing it, but one is an out as a training set and the other is an is a racing set. Usually, the training set would be a cheaper, uh, lower depth aluminum box section style rim, and then your racing set might be something high end. Um, and then, so if one is aluminum brake pad or aluminum brake surface and one is carbon brake surface, you have to change brake pads. And on some bikes, that's a huge pain in the ass. On other bikes, it's really quite straightforward. But it's still an extra step to take. And then if you're traveling for races, it's one more thing to get wrong, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have to... I'm starting to come around on the aluminum brake track as well. And uh, f- if you guys recall our conversation with uh, Nick of TriRig, he was pretty bullish on... Uh, aluminum brake track, rim brake wheels. Um, and I agree with Andrew that weight is really not nearly as much of a factor for triathlon, which is steady state and generally not very hilly. 
um, compared to, let's say, road racing. And I personally, uh, I my disc wheel is aluminum brake track, and I've run all sorts of different front wheels, but uh, a lot of them have been aluminum brake track. And uh, it does inspire confidence for sure. Excellent. All right. We've kind of beat wheels to death, I'd say. So is it, is it time to roll on to something else? <laughs> Only if you make that part, Ed. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about frames because that's where, you know, that's where wheels attach um, and frames get a lot of attention. They are, um, you could probably, you could probably argue which is the sexier element of a bike, the frame or the wheels, because, you know, there's bling value attached to both. Um, but certainly, you know, an exotic looking frame like, uh, well, like Andrews Ventum or, or any of the, you know, uh, like the, the PX series from Cervelo or the, the diamond back ND and anything that looks kind of weird and funky, that's going to turn some heads. So frames are cool. Let's talk about frames next. All right. So aerodynamics, the difference between frames recently is almost nothing from what I've seen. A lot of the test data, they'll have lines that will kind of intersect a few times at different uh, crosswind positions. And then there's different companies making arguments about who does their testing a certain way. But all this really points to is we've kind of reached this pinnacle, kind of like with wheel design, where there's an optimal solution. And everyone seems to have kind of hit that number right now. And it's what that really means is in terms of aerodynamic performance, you're not really that much better off going with one manufacturer versus another, which the other way of looking at it is there's no wrong answer. And I, I agree with Andrew entirely on this. So based on the data, first of all, when you look at those um, at those aerodynamic test diagrams uh, where they plot uh, drag versus yaw angle, for example, you have to ask yourself a few questions. First is at what speed are they testing? And typically that's at 50 kilometers an hour, which is, you know, faster than anyone is averaging, even the top end pros. Um, and then the other thing you have to look at is the scale on the y-axis, on the drag axis, and just deter and just taking a look at what the difference is between the frames is within the range of yaw angles that we're likely to see, which uh, according to a lot of a lot of tests are between you know minus ten percent and plus ten percent, so kind of in the range of a fairly narrow cone of of side winds, if you like. And uh, the differences in that range between almost all uh, modern tri frames or TT frames is quite small. This is my favorite and least favorite marketing trick right in here all at once. And with a, an academic background, it drives me absolutely insane, is when people cut off the, the y-axis or the vertical axis and they choose the scale to make their data look like there's more of a spread. Um, if you were to plot that out in absolute terms, it would not quite be a flat line, but it would be a much smaller variation than you would ever expect. So they just make it look big by by having this essentially magnification on the one axis, which um, just it, it extends any differences and it, it makes it seem like their frame is so much better. But it's it's all a marketing game, and it oh, just drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's super frustrating. If then if then you plotted like bike plus rider on the same plot, you wouldn't see it. It would be in the stratosphere. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think um, the number is just off the top of my head. I could be wrong, but uh, like 700 grams of drag is typical for a bike frame. And then with a rider, it's like 2,800, 2,900. Yeah. Um, so. Well, we determined in your case, it was, you know, you were oh, yeah. you were 73% of the drag and that was including wheels and everything else on the bike. Yeah. So it's it's really no comparison. So it's it, it's still a marketing game for manufacturers, but really it comes down to... I would say just the 
what you like for a style and and probably a big part of that too would be uh what is easiest to work on what's easiest to travel with if you're flying around for races yeah there are a lot of considerations that uh, that you should take into when you're when choosing a bike frame um and fortunately maybe unfortunately aerodynamics isn't one of them anymore so you can um I would say the number one absolute most important consideration is fit, right? So if you can get this frame to fit you in, in this size, then that's – or rather, if you if the answer to that question is no, does it fit, then it's, it should not be considered. Um, I've worked uh, with a whole bunch of people who have done bike fits on who have the wrong size frames, and you're really screwed at that point. Like there's very little you can do to make a frame that is the wrong size fit, especially in, uh, um, in triathlon. And I'm not going to – dwell on fit here because that's going to be a separate show. Uh, we actually have a great expert coming on to talk about fit in, uh, in a few weeks. Um, but if the frame is the wrong size, that is the, or, or if the components on the frame, on the frame, typically the front end, the, the stock stuff are the wrong components. Like if you cannot get your perfect optimal fit on that combination of frame of bike model, frame size, and front end components, then that should not be in the running. So that's kind of the, that would be my first uh, decision parameter. It does become a little bit more challenging because there are so many bikes that are available in the direct con- direct to consumer model now. So Canyon's a good example of that. And it, it does make it challenging to, to purchase something sight unseen. However, there are a lot of bike fitting tools that can simulate the coordinates of a different bike frame so that you can get a, a fit done before you even get the bike. And I think really that's the way to go. Um, and after that, it's just, it comes down to cost and it comes down to, um, to your preference. But yeah, if you can mimic the fit or if you can simulate the fit first before purchasing, find out what is the right size for you, what is the right uh, size or set of dimensions, then you're all set. Yeah, agreed. There's a lot of ways to do it. And uh, the direct-to-consumer bike manufacturers have gotten really savvy now where they'll say, you know, this frame with these components fits like this. So if you have... Um, if you do a, a size, if you have a sizing um, service done, so basically you go into a shop or a fit studio and they give you, uh, they, they, they size you and they fit you on a, a sizing bike um, and they say that, you know, your ideal stack and reach coordinates are X is this and Y is that, then you can see um, different manufacturers, models at different sizes and what you will and will not fit. So that's that's a really good way to start. You can also, um, if you have somebody who you trust, whose eyes you trust, um, you know, jump on a bike in a shop and then have that person assess whether or not that bike's going to fit. Uh, most shops will also have the kind of the expertise to, to help you with that process too. Uh, I will caution uh, our listeners though that in my experience, some bike shops that sell um, triathlon or time trial bikes but primarily sell road bikes where their expertise might be in road and they just carry, you know, a few models of the TT uh, bikes. They may not be super experienced in in fitting triathlon bikes and triathletes. So just, uh, you know, ask around, make sure that they the advice you're getting is sound. But certainly if you're getting a triathlon specific fit from somebody who is a tri-fit expert, then uh, then you should be good to go with that frame. The one area I will say that frames start to differentiate themselves now is in hydration and nutrition storage. And this actually, Absolutely. this ties in nicely to our next topic as well. So we can kind of make a smooth segue here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is if you, and I'll, I'll throw out some examples there on the, on the frame side. So um, frames become more and more 
aerodynamically similar, uh, as Andrew mentioned. They, the designers and engineers are thinking about how to differentiate their products. And this is an area where that differentiation starts to really shine. And here's where, uh, other than you know price and style, I think where uh, some frame manufacturers do a much better job than others. And this is specifically the ability to integrate and to attach um, uh, well-hidden aerodynamic uh, hydration and nutrition storage solutions. So do we have any honorable mentions in this category, Andrew? I think there's a couple obvious ones that jump out. So first of all, with riding a Ventum, um, there's a huge <laughs> water bottle on top. So having like 1.4 liters is for their normal frame size is their capacity, which is a massive amount of water. That's most most of what you'd need for a half distance race. Um, so you can have all of your onboard nutrition and hydration mounted in a very aerodynamic way, in a very convenient way. And that makes things a lot easier. You don't have to worry about changing bottles or anything like that. Um, the other honorable mentions I'd have would be the uh, the specialized shiv, which, um, you know, love it or hate it, the new one has that massive flap on the back, the tail, and uh, it's it's full of water as well or storage. So there's there's definitely a lot of capacity there as well. And that's um, that has been pretty well integrated, maybe not aesthetically, but uh, <laughs> it depends on your point of view again, because there was a lot of controversy around it at first. But um, but it has been well integrated aerodynamically into the frame. Um, so that one, I'll say that there's maybe more challenges with refilling, but um, but it's still a very creative solution. Um, the other one I'd point out is the P5X or the, the PX series now. Um, and those have a lot of... Um, Basically, in the it's kind of a sideways V for those people who aren't familiar with it. But uh, inside that V is a lot of storage, so that they've actually designed it around the idea of having um, some of your spares, like a tube and CO two cartridge, um, as well as having extra water, extra nutrition, things like that. So it's been designed with that specifically in mind. Yeah, and that's uh, and it's it's really great to see manufacturers thinking about this kind of stuff because it's one thing to say, um, and all of these manufacturers who make these bikes will say this to you, it's one thing to say that our bike is really fast when it's stripped down, but when it's loaded up for, uh, let's say, a long course race like a half Ironman or an Ironman, and you've got you know gels taped to the top tube, and you've got water bottles festooned on every single attachment point, um, and you've got you know uh, a, a bento box with Velcro straps attached to strange places on the bike, um, that bike is no longer as fast as it was in the wind tunnel when it was all stripped down. Um, this was originally this argument was made by the guys in the wind tunnel, the specialized folks with their um, original triathlon shiv that had the uh, the massive bladder in the down tube. Um, they were they started talking about this. You know, we could you could sew up a bike like ours with all the stuff you need for for an Ironman triathlon. It'll be way faster than the competition with all the stuff that you have to stick onto it. So um, integrating all of these elements in an aerodynamically sensible way does actually make a big difference um, to the to the overall picture. So even if bikes when they've got nothing on them, are very, very close. When you think about all the stuff you got to strap onto your bike or your person, then some of these um, some of these manufacturers who have thought about 
integrating all of these elements aerodynamically, those really start to shine. Absolutely. And it, it kind of leads into the other part of the argument. What if you don't have a bike that allows some of the storage? Um, or what if you need to add additional storage? What would the top choices be? And for this, there's there's a couple simple things that I would argue. Um, between the arms bottle, I'm a big fan of those. They're generally aerodynamically neutral, so they don't add any or much additional drag for the amount of capacity you get. Right. They're very convenient, so you don't have to go out of aero position to drink. Um, and then they're easy to fill as well. And then on top of that, for extra storage, then you can put um, bottles behind the saddle. So that's my favorite place to mount them. They're a little harder to get at, but if you only need to use them to refill a between-the-arms bottle, then really that difference will be negligible. Right. And those two bottles, for most races, two bottles are enough to carry on your bike. And I'll explain why. Most races... Uh, long course races, uh, Andrew said that he could get through uh, 70.3 with 1.4 liters. I'm like, yeah, maybe. I, I can't. I, I I need more water. It's it's touch and go. <laughs> um, a cooler race. A cooler race, yeah. maybe. But um, I'm, you know, if you were quite fast, I'm I'm definitely more than a bottle an hour. My my fluid consumption race at in racing is about a liter an hour, or even a tiny little bit more. Uh, and then I yeah, I need a little bit more than that. But anyway, with uh, with all long course races, you have aid stations. So um, unless you've got, you're carrying something very specialized that you can't support yourself at aid stations, like some specialized kind of uh, hydration nutrition mix, um, two bottles are generally enough. So a between the arms bottle and one behind the saddle is uh, is a really nice way to go. I agree with Andrew uh, on that one, and that's exactly what I run on on my setup. For nutrition, uh, I'm actually a fan personally of liquid nutrition. Um, so I don't like having the separate gels. I find I find that sometimes if you try and um, have one, they get sticky and then they get stuck in your mouth and it's hard to breathe and it's kind of a, kind of a pain. So I, I like that just for the integration essentially because we have uh, with the, the liquid nutrition, you have everything in those bottles. So you can have maybe a separate bottle for water if you just want water and a separate bottle for your mixed nutrition, which will give you the right, the, um, the right mixture and the uh, uh, osmolality that you want so that you digest it properly. But um, that's my personal preference. You do see people taping a lot of gels to their top tube. I'm not really a fan of that. That's not very aerodynamic, but um, if it's easy to access and if it gives you confidence, then that's the way to go for for your own use. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll plug liquid nutrition too on my side. It is it is easy and you don't have to think about it, um, provided that you're taking the right amount of it. And that's really where some of the tricky bits can come in. So it's a good idea to mark your bottle and kind of put gradations on it so that you can see how much you need to take per hour at least. Um, also there's the, the, you know, my, I'll, I'll make a case against a foil packet gels because they create so much garbage and it's garbage because the, those foil packets are not, they can't be recycled or processed in any meaningful way. The best thing you can do with them is incinerate them in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in after you're done using them and it's a single use piece of piece of uh, equipment and uh, I think that as much as possible um, it's it behooves us all to avoid this kind of stuff but that's my that's my environmental rant on that um, on the BTA front one one thing I'll, I'll mention is there are two broad categories so BTA is between the arrow bars um, bottle storage the most popular option is to have something with a straw so this is where the bottle is, is you know, proprietary and uh, has a built-in straw and a, and a refill port. The so if you had to add water or 
any kind of liquid to it. You fill it through the port. Um, the advantage is the straw is always there. It reminds you to drink, so it's easier if you forget. If you know, if you're one of those forgetful people who doesn't who needs to be reminded to eat and drink, um, it's easier to remember. Um, the filling port gives you, uh, you know, the kind of the flexibility to add things to it, especially if they're tablets for um, uh, electrolytes, something like a noon or a precision hydration tab, and they're fairly easy to fill. Um, the disadvantage is that. Um, they, it is a proprietary bottle, so if you gunk it up, you have to get a new one, and they're way more expensive than a traditional cycling bottle. And uh, sometimes they're a little bit splashy. Um, you know, you get stuff in them, and then if it's if they're full, they on especially on bumpy roads, they tend to splash about a little bit. The other option is just using a standard bike bottle cage uh, in your between the aero bar setup. So this is where you all you do is all you have is a regular cage, and you have a regular um, you know seven hundred milliliter 500 milliliter bike bottle uh with whatever is in it and then you you actually have to remove it from the cage and drink it like a regular bike bottle and replace it um and pros and cons to both uh setups i like the latter i just use a regular bike bottle because um i don't have to muck around with uh, a, a kind of a, a special bottle and clean it all the time i can use you know i have like 15 bottles at home i can use whichever one i want um and then it, at aid stations it you know you certainly you can't mix um a product but i find that um since i'm an arrow all the time even if a bottle doesn't fit the cage perfectly because my arms are around it i can have a gatorade bottle in there and, and, and not have it bounce out pretty reliably or uh, a water bottle from uh, from an aid station so that's the way that i like to do things up front so obviously there's different solutions that will work for different people but um i think there's there's a couple good compromises there or good uh, takeaways that people can can have from this discussion so um, on the side of nutrition, uh, where would you carry your nutrition if you didn't have something integrated like the PX series or the Diamondback Endian? Uh, so nutrition-wise, I think a bento box style that hides behind the top tube uh, or the, the steerer tube that extends, um, that's probably the most aerodynamically neutral place to have it because you're already putting it in the wake of something else. Okay. Um, that's that's my preference. Uh, I don't love the, the gels in the... The back pockets of a tri suit because that's a very aerodynamically sensitive area, um, and also it's just awkward to get to. So, um, so I think the yeah the uh, the bento box style would probably be my preference there. What if you had a flat uh, a flat top tube bike like uh, most modern bikes don't have a, a steerer projection anymore? There the stem is the stem integrates and flows smoothly into the top tube. Hmm. Liquid nutrition at that point. Liquid nutrition at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, there, there's, I can't think of a good place offhand, um, unless you have something maybe behind the saddle. If you have one of those, uh, the bottles that, um, or basically you just put your nutrition inside a bottle that has a quick release lid or something. There's a, there's a couple solutions. I can't remember the companies offhand, but, uh, you can get tool storage bottles that fit in a bottle cage. So, um, so that's, probably what my solution would be there. Um, but you kind of caught me off guard with that question, so I don't have a great answer for it. <laughs> Surprise. That's actually my my uh, my setup for this year. So my Shiv TT is um, there is no uh, steer tube projection to hide a bento box behind. And um, it obviously doesn't have any, it's a 
2011, I think, and it's a time trial bike. So there's no thought to storage at all on that bike. Um, so I have to think about where I'm going to put stuff for specifically for Canada Man, which I'm racing in July. Although that is a supported race, like a self-supported race. So I sh- I'm not going to have to carry very much, but I will have to carry a little bit. So it's something that I have to think about and figure out. All right. Shall we move on to the last topic then? Yeah, let's do it. Um, the the last bit uh, that we want to cover today is helmets. So uh, helmets are very, very important for a number of reasons. Obviously, you shouldn't ride a bike without one. Having done at least two headers that I can remember off of bikes and uh, yeah, having that helmet on my uh, on my head um, really, really made my day a lot less bad than it could have been otherwise. Um, so obviously for safety, helmets are critical and, um, there are other considerations though, uh, specifically aerodynamics and cooling that we want to talk to you about. Yeah. I I think it's no, no secret that there's a little bit of aerodynamic advantage with a different helmet shape and you see a lot of different options now. Uh, it used to be that a long tailed helmet that blended into your back was kind of the, what everyone perceived as the optimal solution. And I think Lance Armstrong had the epitome of this with a a helmet that seemed like it was about a meter and a half long that went down his spine. Um, (laughs) So, and those can be extremely fast, but it requires you to be very, very dedicated in your head position. You can't budge or else they just, the, the performance drops off the cliff. So for that reason, a lot of the longer tailed helmets have kind of gone out of fashion, especially for Ironman distance races where you need to move around just to keep your muscles from seizing up. And you're starting to see all of these medium tail or short tail or tailless helmets that are becoming quite popular now. And they can definitely be quite fast. Yeah, I think really what it comes down to, and we've said this on the show in the past, that there is no blanket recommendation for a, an aero helmet. Um, the choice of hel- the choice of helmet style really depends on head position. Um, so if you guys look at, you know, any uh, photo galleries of, of folks racing, you know, the, the money shot is from the side of the athlete, which is kind of where you can start to see what the, what their bodies and their heads are doing. Um, so if you look at the different, at the different positions of different folks, you will see marked differences. Um, and certainly, uh, the, the tendency, the trend recently has been to ride with a lower head position. And the reason for this is pretty obvious. And if you recall our conversation where we we broke Andrew up into little pieces and looked at the the individual components, the drag that his head presented, which was shod in a uh, kind of... Poor, we, Interesting choice of words, but anyway, was wearing a uh, a PO a Garneau PO nine helmet. His drag, his head drag was tiny, and the reason it was tiny, the number one reason it was tiny, it was not because of the helmet he was wearing, but because he was able to effectively put his head in front of his torso. So whatever um, whatever pressure drag it would have experienced had it been you know uh, <laughs> a head on its own um, was uh, was was negated by the fact that there was a torso right behind it. So for for people in that position, you would choose one style of helmet versus for someone who prefers for safety or comfort to ride more head up so you can see more of the road ahead of you, that would be a different style of helmet that would make the most sense. I thought we promised we weren't going to talk about pressure drag. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to get away from from it. I know. I know. How can you have a normal conversation without talking about pressure drag? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought you were were going to give me grief for for talking about decapitating you again. Oh, no, that's fine. It's just the pressure drag is what I was focused on. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. So yeah, there's um, 
there's a lot of variability and in individuality in, in helmets. And I would say that short of aerodynamic testing, um, comfort, uh, safety, and how well it integrates into your back are the most important things. Um, and not in that order. Safety, I would say, is number one. So there's a lot of safety improvements. You've heard of MIPS lately. Um, I can't remember what it stands for offhand, but uh, basically it allows the helmet to rotate independent of your head if you get in an accident. And the reason this is important is a lot of the brain injuries that come from impacts are not the actual impact, but the um, the rotation that happens quickly. So your brain has its own inertia and it's kind of suspended by... I don't know, biological springs, essentially. Um, but uh, if the if your skull twists too quickly, these can all rotate and pull your brain into the, the side of your skull, which is where you get a lot of these head injuries. Um, so the MIPS allows the helmet to take up some of the rotation and prevent your skull from rotating in an accident like that. So it's a big improvement over the traditional foam style helmets. And I've I've got expanded polystyrene foam, uh, an EPS uh, foam helmet, which is like the standard that everyone is used to. Um, and I, I ride that, but I think MIPS would be the way I'd go in the future for my next helmet. Yeah, and it's becoming more popular and less expensive. Um, so MIPS is a it is a it's a liner on the inside of your helmet, which is which contacts with your head, your hair. Um, and as Andrew said, yeah, in case of an impact, it there's there's some slip allowed between the liner and the main shell of the helmet. And the shell of the helmet is still made of expanded polystyrene, um, so it does absorb impacts as well as it would otherwise. But it does allow for a little bit of that slip so then that that slip has to happen somewhere that energy of impact has to be absorbed somewhere and it's much better that the energy is absorbed between the liner of the helmet and the helmet itself rather than between the skull and the brain you know the brain case in the brain that would be not where you want you want the least amount of energy transfer to your brain basically and this is one way of of uh, absorbing some of that impact energy before it reaches you know the the all-important gray matter and I would say that the importance of avoiding concussions has never been more prominent than it is these days. You see a lot of the um, the American football players who who have these issues with um, uh, what's it called again? Jump in here to save me. Uh, it's uh, chronic traumatic yes. encephal something or other, some kind of itis CTE. or apathy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, CTE is what it is is the acronym. Yeah, so it's like it's chronic, meaning that you're you've got it for life. It's traumatic, meaning that it, you earned it from from hitting your head on stuff uh, like other people or or the pavement. Um, and the 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 word I cannot remember how to pronounce. <laughs> the <laughs> or e remember word. all the letters in is the e word. Yeah, it, it has you know it, it basically it's like it's it's brain trauma is what it is. So it's chronic traumatic brain trauma, and you certainly don't want it because there's been a rash of of high profile stories as Andrew mentioned in the out of the NFL and other pro football ranks of uh, of otherwise quite healthy individuals having severe um severe limitations and and leading to things like suicide and and violent tendencies as well. Yeah, and these aren't things like a broken arm where the damage is immediately obvious. This is something that can present itself over years or decades. Um so anything you can do to reduce the likelihood of that happening to you, um I would say is a is a benefit and it's worth paying a little bit extra for because, you know, throwing an extra 10 or 20 years off the end of your life versus paying an extra 100 200 dollars for a helmet, I think that's a pretty good argument that most people would uh would agree with, but it always comes down to the, oh, it's never actually going to happen to me, but it just might. <laughs> sure. Um, helmet fits also quite important. Um, it's not 
as as in, is not as complicated as bike fit, obviously. But um, the rule is that the edge, the front edge of the helmet, shouldn't be more than uh, a finger's width above your eyebrows. So you saw a, a weird trend with uh, long tail helmets maybe five to 10 years ago when long tail helmets were the thing in in triathlon, where a strategy that certain people were adopting to keep that long tail close to the back, which is uh, what uh, Andrew pointed out as being the most important component of that style of helmet, is people were pushing, were taking the helmet and rotating it backwards. So rotating it so that the, the tail would be closer to the back, which would allow them to have a lower head position while still keeping the tail tucked. Um, And while aerodynamically that made some sense, what it did was expose a whole, like a whole huge area of forehead uh, that was not protected by the helmet. So in the the event of a crash where you you would hit face first, where this athlete would hit face first, there would be much uh, less protection there than there should have been with a properly fitted helmet. So um, don't, uh, I would strongly encourage all of our listeners not to do that, even though it is technically possible to do, um, because it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely not worth your life. I'll admit I've been guilty of that in the past, and that's something I need to work on (laughs) to to establish a different head position there or helmet position. The solution there is a different helmet, right? So like if you are riding a long tail helmet and you uh, choose not to or cannot hold the kind of uh, head position to make that helmet optimal, you just go with a different helmet. And in fact, I would argue that it's probably a better, never mind safety, it'll obviously be safer if you wear it correctly. That's, you know, that goes without saying, but it'll also be potentially faster. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of options out there. Um they with the long tails, I've always been curious why they never bent the tails down further. Um, I could never figure that one out because if everyone has an issue with keeping the helmet rotated back, why not just have an option that has the tail point down further? I think some some did. I know there was like a, a Rudy helmet that had an option for a an extra clip on component that would tuck that would extend essentially extend the tail so that it would be closer to your back. So and then there was I think a laser helmet maybe I'm I'm trying to remember I could be wrong that had a little bit of a a little bit of a longer extension that pointed down. Yep, there was the laser wasp I think had an extension where you could have like a a short tail or a long tail helmet and that was clip on. There's the Endura Aero Switch which is something I've tried before. It's not actually available in North America so it's a little bit harder to get your hands on if you're in Canada or the US. Um, okay. And then the Giro Selector is what I used to use as well. Um, which was quite an aerodynamic helmet, very comfortable actually. Um, and it had a little clip-on section that would join your back, like the, I guess the spine area with the uh, the tail of the helmet to to seal that gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Selector is one of the classic like long tail helmets that was quite popular. Um, so the short recommendation here for what's the most aerodynamic, if you ride head up, and you can look at yourself in the pictures, if you're if your eyes, if you can draw a straight line from your eyes down the horizon, and your head is clearly above the, the line of your back, and you can hold that position, then a longer tail helmet might be a good idea. And that might be actually hard to find, because there just aren't that many of them around anymore. Uh, I can't think of a single production helmet that's, you know, truly a long tail helmet, but something even like the Garno P09 that has a, a mid-length tail to it might might be a really good fit. Um, whereas if you're riding with your head held quite low, um, sort of that traditional shrug position, then then a medium tail helmet or a completely tailless helmet like the, you know, like the Bambino or like the... Uh... Yeah, there's a couple Giros. There's the Air Attack and the... 
um, the Vantage, I think, or Vanquish. Um, the Vanquish is the new air attack. I think it replaced it. Yeah. Yeah. I always get those confused with the Aston Martin models because they've got a Vanquish and a Vantage as well. <laughs> so I would like to think I've got an Aston Martin on my head, but um, sadly, I can't afford that. I don't know that you want one on your head. It's also worth considering aero road helmets um, for longer, especially longer duration, hotter races. There are Every pretty much every major helmet manufacturer now makes one of these helmets. Um, probably the first uh, the first couple that were out there that were big were the Air Attack that Andrew just mentioned from Giro and uh, Specialized has their Evade line, which frequently tests quite fast. Mm-hmm. I did some very uh, ad hoc aero testing on the road with uh, with mine, and it only was marginally slower than uh, my Giro. Arrowhead, which is a full arrow helmet with a visor, um, so that is definitely worth considering because you're you're not giving up a lot of aerodynamic benefits, especially if you ride with a head down position um, with an arrow road helmet, and you are gaining uh, two important benefits. One is cooling because they're they're almost universally uh, better ventilated than full arrow helmets, and the other is weight. Um, so as more road style helmets, they are considerably lighter and especially if you have a a low head position which means there's you know your head is bobbing at the end of your neck uh the strain on the neck muscles again especially over a long course race are lower with a lighter and the other advantage aesthetically is you don't look like a knob when you're riding on your road bike wearing an aero (laughs) helmet Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're not. The roadies will at best make fun of you, and at worst, not let you join the ride <laughs> if you're uh, if you've got one of those lids. So uh, if you're, you know, again, the same thing that I said about wheels. Like if you're only going to have one helmet, an Aero Road helmet, it makes a whole ton of sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's that's a good investment, and that allows you if you've got a single helmet, it allows you to spring for the extra things like the MIPS. You you can make that an extra investment in your own safety um, because you don't have to justify having two different helmets that both have the upgraded safety. Well, I think we uh, that wraps it up for us today, Andrew. We ran through the uh, the frames, the wheels, the storage uh, options on frames, and now the helmets. Um, and that's uh, a really good place to kick off this series on uh, what elements that you can spend your money on in triathlon cycling that are going to make you faster. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question that there's lots of options to spend your money on, but making a good <laughs> choice, um, that's that's really where it comes down to. And yeah, from our own experience, we want to uh, provide the best options for people. And so if there's any questions about specific gear that, uh, that you may have thought about in the past and not been sure about, uh, fire off those questions for us and we can maybe touch on on some of those questions in the start of the next episode. Yeah. And uh, as always, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, as you can probably hear in our voices, Andrew and I really like making this podcast and uh, we hope that you like listening to it. And if you do, we want you to help us spread the word and tell your friends so that they can like listening to it too. Uh, and uh, rate us or review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Thanks for joining us, everyone. 